hello and welcome to episode 98 of the 1099 for the week of June 26th, 2017. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the creative director of the Dragon Age series, a writer for Mass Effect and Jade Empire, and an active streamer on Twitch, Mike Laidlaw. Mike, how are you doing today? <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for the intro, too. That was comprehensive. See, yeah, that's usually what I try to go for. It's funny, before I ever talk to anyone, of course, I have a general idea of who they are. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of Dragon Age, so of course I knew who you were, but... I try to like look into the Wikipedia and the IMDb, which we talked about before we went on air. There's some inaccuracies for you. Wait, do, do I have a Wikipedia? I don't think I do. You do have I? an IMDb. I don't think you have a Wikipedia. Okay. So oh, thank at God. I at least, <laughs> at least found that. And it's funny while it's looking through it. I mean, your name is tied to so many projects that people are so extremely emotionally attached to. I mean, I feel like I see calls for a Jade Empire 2 every single week. Uh, some people hold Mass Effect's lore with like the level of reverence of almost the Bible. Like... It, for you, is that at all intimidating when you're working on projects of this magnitude? Can even getting on Twitter on a daily basis be exhausting? Or is seeing that passion, seeing that fervor for the things that you're a major part of actually energizing? Uh, it, it's funny. It, it has – like there's moments where you're like, oh, you know. And the thing <laughs> is, nine times out of ten, when you, when you have that reaction, it's because you screwed up in some way. Uh, and the, the way I approach it is um, – you know, honestly, in, in a lot of ways, like that that kind of level of passion interaction is a lot like a friendship. Um, and, you know, if you think of it as like you're kind of putting money into a trust bank and occasionally when you fuck up, you are withdrawing from the trust bank. <laughs> and I think what you want to do is be putting more in than you're taking out. And to me, that's it's a lot like it's a lot like it's the opposite of the weight loss. Right. You know, it's just, it's just <laughs> calories, man. It does, all the rest of it's kind of kind of bull. Um, so. My thing, you know, when I approach it, like being on Twitter, I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter, um, is that in a lot of ways, my, if anything, it's really cool to think that, you know, I'm more than just like a Dragon Age guy. It's like, no, I'm a person. Mm-hmm. And it'd be cool if y'all could see that there's kind of this larger, larger, you know, dude who tells terrible dad jokes um, <laughs> and Twitch streams and all that kind of stuff, like like you said. Um, so it's it's one of those things where there are times where I will screw up. There are times where I'll say something kind of thoughtlessly or not even realize I'm treading on uncomfortable ground or, or you know, uh, you know, the game will have an imperfection and stuff like that. And, you know, that, that'll happen, right? It yeah. always happens. It's very much a human experience. So I, it can be intimidating and you do watch what you say and you stay conscious of what you're saying. But at the same time, I, I consider the benefits to significantly outweigh any downsides. And we are finally getting to this point where people are able to communicate with the creators of things they really love. I felt like back when I was younger, there's always like the franchise and the studio behind it, but you don't really know the actual individual players, the person who might be constructing the story, the, the different people involved in making the games you love. I mean, even as I wrote for GameSpot and IGN for the longest times, when I was coming up, I always thought it was just an IGN review or a GameSpot review instead of this is a Kevin Van Ord review. Uh, Twitter's right. been really beneficial in that way. I mean, like, again, like, has it been cool of course you do get that the backlash like you said if you maybe fuck up for some reason you get some sort of response but has it been cool to actually get fans to reach out to you maybe over dm or just directly over a, a twitter mention saying like hey like your game has been extremely important for me in this way or in that way or i've spent hundreds of hours in this world is that kind of again energizing might be the right word has that kind of been made a lot of the the hard hours worth it seeing that directly oh Immensely. Like it is um, one of one of my favorite conventions to attend is PAX. Um, And I mean, Gamescom would be up there if I spoke German. Uh, But (laughs) when you when you go to a fan convention or when you're dealing with people on Twitter, um, I find there's general enthusiasm. Right. And when that happens, it's pretty great. And then there can be, you know, complaints, but the complaints almost always come from a place passion. Whenever possible, I try to actually address them like, oh, no, I understand, you know, and I, I get why that's disappointing. However, Unfortunately, you know, the product is done and we're no, we're not patching or we're not, um, you know, that was just a creative decision we made or whatever. And most people are pretty reasonable. There's some people who are like straight up, you know, I'm, I'm coming at the king. And you're like, yeah, we're, you're not even worth the time. Here's a mute. Um, and that's fine. That's fine. Right. Like I get it. Some people just kind of that's all that's how they are going to respond and react. But most people are pretty reasonable. Um, and then the, then the upside is when you go to something like a, like a PAX or people come up and they're like, can I get a photo with you? And they're wearing like this elaborately constructed Meryl or Fenris or, you know, um, uh, you know, Cassandra's armor with the full trench coat. And they've been walking around for like four hours and, they, and you can tell they're nervous. And they're like, please guy get a photo. It's like, wow. Okay. That's it's, 
it's it's energizing, yes, but it's humbling. Yeah. You're like, oh my, oh my lord, you put so much work into this, and and it's so flattering. And then the the third phase is every once in a while, someone kind of quietly takes you aside and is like, I I need you to understand how much this meant to me. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> those can be heartbreaking, right? Yeah. There are some that are are they're hard stories. They're not good stories, but they're stories that they need to tell and I need to hear. Because in a lot of ways, it makes um, a lot of long hours and a lot of hard work matter. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite, which again, not too heartbreaking, um, is is a fellow who had been deployed. I think he was he was the double deployed to Afghanistan. Um, and this was at the, jeez, oh, the packs where we did the big booth where you got to go through the joining. Um, when, you know, we were all, uh, uh, we were like, two of us were dressed up as Grey Warden recruiters <laughs> and people were going through it. Like we actually smeared fake blood on people's forehead after oh, they passed the joining. And you incredible. had to beat, you had to beat the, the Kakari Wilds. You had to get to the joining part to actually get to go through the ritual. And of course, all these people are, um, are like coming out with this kind of sticky kind of corn syrupy blood in their head. So there was a bit of a stream directly from like our booth to the bathroom to wash it off. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so one guy was like, man, I just, I just need you to know that this stuff keeps us sane, right? We're, we're playing these games and it's an escape from military regime and stuff like that. And it's a, it's a place where it's like the bad guys are bad guys because they have red names. And sometimes that's what I need. Yeah. And it was just, it was awesome. And he, he gave me one of those like military guy handshakes where you're like, holy, look, good Lord, you were so strong. <laughs> um, and then he came back the next day and gave me like his unit's patch. And was like, I really want you to have this. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I still have that on my desk at work to this day because it makes you remember that it sometimes means more than just entertainment. Yeah. I mean, you might forget. Like, if you think about a lot of people when they go through difficult times with families or maybe they're deployed overseas. Like, earlier on for me, it was always music where you have a certain song, a certain band that kind of (laughs) – lines up with that time in your life and now a lot because games have advanced to a point where they can tell interesting emotional stories maybe that's what really gets you through something yeah. uh, and it's, it's something that we've never really dealt with as much before and it has to be amazing to finally actually see that come to fruition where you're like man like what i'm doing i already knew was cool and fun and we really enjoy it but to actually get that big of a response has to be amazing like i said i, I was i was going through your imdb page and you've done writing creative direction production for different games at bioware uh, what's it been like balancing and doing these different types of roles instead of just kind of having one singular one? I mean, is it common? Uh, we talked a little bit off air about at smaller studios, everyone kind of pitches in, especially at an indie garage studio where it's four, five, six people. But at a major studio like Bioware where you're making massive AAA projects, is it common to wear that many different hats? Well, you know, in my case specifically, it's been very much um, a progression of responsibility and career. Um, so when I when I started, uh, so I used to I used to do game reviews uh, way way back in 2000 2003. Um, I don't do you remember the Adrenaline Vault? Do you remember it? Yes, I do. Uh, where it was like the place you went to go for patches back yeah. in the day. Um, but yeah, I, I used to review for them, and uh, you know I'm certain if I read any of those reviews, I would find them cringeworthy and appalling <laughs> uh, because I was a child. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm mean, a 25 year old child, but still. Um, so that was like my English degree, and I managed to luck into that, and I worked with um, some really really cool guys there that were really helpful and really really good mentors, and and um, you know I had editors that were a little bit of a ball buster in the right way. In the look, it, I was never I was never late. I was never late. Um, but it was it was it was still like, hey, you, you know, here, let's tighten this up. Let's talk to the point. Let's uh, talk about how every paragraph has to come to a conclusion. Let's talk about, you know, some purpose. Uh, then I moved to like I managed to well, I, I was doing a full time day job that was terrible. And I left it with such glee. It was like that scene from Wanted where, he, where he's striding <laughs> out and hits Chris Pratt in the face with the yep. keyboard. Um, I didn't do that, but I did high five my team as I left. So it's pretty much there the same was thing. It's pretty much equivalent. Yeah, it was a call center job, and mm, it yeah. was unfun. Anyway, so I got out of that, and and I managed to get I managed to land a job at Bioware um, as a writer, like entry level. And and a big part of that, I think, was that uh, it was for Jade Empire, and the fact that I'd been reviewing console games made them go, okay, this guy's pretty up to speed. And this is the era of like the the, the first Xbox, right? Like I had a I had a green reviewer copy of the Xbox where it was that cr- like crystal plastic. Yeah. And uh, they were like, well, okay, he knows consoles. That's good. He knows um, kind of like more action-y games or sports games. So he's kind of got a better sense of this. Uh, and, you know, I did a module. So that, that got me in the door. And then just over time, it was um, – I, I appear 
uh, I've been told that I have some degree of organizational skill mm-hmm. and being able to work with the team um, that we were, it was the first project we did where we had our own internal voiceover production flow, as opposed to letting LucasArts handle it or letting Atari, well, back at the time, Infogrames handle it. Um, so we figured out that pipeline, like how do we print scripts using nonlinear dialogue editors? What does that look like for an actor, right? That was something that I worked with a lady named Shauna Perry to basically figure out from the ground up. And um, then we, you know, got our first director, who is Caroline Livingstone, who still works with us. And, uh, you know, she was like, I don't know video games. And these days she's like super pro, but she she was a local actor who absolutely knew how to direct. And yeah. so we worked that out. And anyway, over time. Um, you know, it was it was from lead writer, which is leading a team of, you know, seven or so people to making my way to the kind of lead design, which is which is kind of like, OK, cool. I'm in charge of the flow of a game um, to creative director, which is kind of like one step. It's not not up. It's one step out is a better way to think of it, uh, where I worry about the franchise itself. Uh, and work directly with a lead designer who kind of worries about the moment-to-moment uh, gameplay and a lead writer who worries about the narrative. And then my job is to make sure that all of that fits with the comics and that anime we did and the novels and um, that the overall game is sticking to a major theme and negotiating with my counterparts, the art and uh, technical directors, to make sure that the stuff we're building makes sense and the stuff we're building is gorgeous. Is that sort of... Uh, I'm not saying you only have a delegation role, but when you are kind of overseeing everything, is there part of you that misses just kind of getting into the thick of it, like when you were a writer back in the day for Jade Empire, or do you actually get to spend some time writing and doing a lot of the things you did earlier in your career? Uh, so it's it's one of those things where um, it's I, I am always allowed <laughs> to open the tool set. Uh, the tool set is very different than when I started. Um, and so I always have to like grab Patrick Weeks and be like, okay, okay, dude, show me how the hell we check in now. And he's like, oh yeah, it's totally different from, you know, mass or whatever. Um, but yeah, so for Inquisition, I wrote all of the uh, choice stuff and the background stuff for the keep. Uh, myself, because basically it was one of those things where like, I don't really have a writer free who could tackle this. And well, this might be kind of fun. So I did that. Um, I did all the uh, the silly descriptions for the for the outfits that we patched in uh, with patch eight. I think it was the one that came out parallel to Trespasser mm-hmm. where you could change your Skyhold outfit. I wrote all of those. Um, I've worked with the team like Dragon Age 2. I worked with the editing team and we basically owned all the ability descriptions. So every once in a while I dive in on something small. Um, and I guess the actual in-game content, I did write a chunk of the characters that appeared in Haven, like Herod the Blacksmith and uh, the, the the Templar. What was her name? Michelle? Melissa? It was something like that. Yeah. Uh, I, wrote, I just wrote a bunch of those guys because, again, I had a bit of time. I like to stay current with the tools, like to fiddle with them uh, and to understand them. Because if I'm if I'm fresh eyes and come in kind of mid-production, I'm like, guys, every time we save, it takes 10 minutes. What the hell? <laughs> and then I can go to the tech director and go, this is maddening. Can you bring that down to five? Because we save like 10 times a day. Uh, if I've got 10 people saving 10 times a day and it's, and it's half the time, that's significant. And, and that can be a really powerful, like that, that on, hands-on thing can be really, really critical to um, making an argument and to understanding the team. So, yeah, when I want to, when I have time, which is, which is a precious commodity, um, I absolutely love diving back in. How difficult can it be to balance all this lore, to balance all these characters, to balance these different worlds, everything you've created? Because I talked to um, Alexis Kennedy on this podcast not too long ago, and I kind of asked him, like, was it just incredible? Do you get this giant, dusty old book of lore plopped in front of you before you can even actually have the job? You need to read through the entirety of it before you can write anything for Dragon <laughs> Age? Like, how often are you just looking through and being like, well, that can't happen because it would cross streams with this, 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 and this, this, that? Like, is that just really difficult to keep up with? It's, it's a team effort. Really is the the only way to, to maintain it. Um, one of the great things we did, one of my favorite things that we did over the course of DA is I recognized pretty early on because, you know, Origins, I came on not midway through. I came on probably in the latter third, which given that it was a long development is still uh, two years or more. Um, but it was one of those things where I came in and said, OK, there's a lot going on here. And right now, most of it lives in Dave Gator's head. And Dave Gator's head is a magical place full of wonders. And that's good. <laughs> But Dave Gator's head is also not very easy to search and not available in uh, any sort of external partner <laughs> accessible yeah. way. So one thing we did was we hired a fellow named Ben Jelena, who's unfortunately since moved on, but he's, he's gone off to go do his own indie stuff in Toronto, which I'm like, good for you, dude. Uh, and he was a crime reporter with the Edmonton Journal. 
And so he had a very good head for details. He had a a very, very precise mind for digging in and investigating, right? Because he'd been doing that for years. It's funny, the guy who replaced him uh, also wrote for the Edmonton Journal, but was a war correspondent. So we're kind of escalating and getting yeah, more, more intense. What comes after that? I, I, I Political? Uh, <laughs> anyway, who knows? Uh, that's me being topical. Anyway, so we, we hired Ben, and Ben like was brought in on contract. He eventually moved into full-time, but his contract was spend six months, dig through the games and the books and everything, and let's build a wiki internally that, that um, is, you know, I mean, there is a DA wiki, and the fans do an amazing job of keeping it up to date, but they can't know where we're headed, and they can't know all the quantum, right? They can't know the stuff that's variable. So we built that internally. We made that available, and the fun part was, and this was always kind of the plan, is that we then sat down with Dark Horse and said, I bet we could we could turn this into a product. And that's where the world of Thetis books, which are, you know, two encyclopedic written from in-world perspective tomes of, of lore came from. And the Dark Horse team was amazing, right? They they worked with our art team, a fellow named Nick uh, Thornborough, who does a lot of our work with Dark Horse, basically art directed the whole thing. Uh, he's a Bioware fellow as well. And the Dark Horse folks did just such a beautiful job with layout, and they did those incredible um, leather-bound versions, like the Super VIP or Collector's Edition ones. So we did all that and said, okay, we've got all this lore. Let's put it together, and let's put it in a way where now, instead of Alexis having to have a dusty tome lump down on his desk, he gets a brand-new printed tome from Dark Horse, and he just breaks the cellophane. It's great. There's no, yeah, it doesn't have to like, sneeze through all the dust that comes off from that giant that, book. Exactly. That's, that's, that's a huge advantage. I think there's so many interesting development stories that don't ever really get out to the public where people were working developers were working on different aspects of a game that maybe in concept were amazing but didn't really fully work in practice throughout the course of the main three games you said you came in on like the final third of the first dragon age inquisition or even the dlc has there ever been a time during development where your team has either had a change of heart or notice something that just, you know, in theory this works, but in practice it's too much, and you've had to just either throw out a large portion of the work or completely repurpose something? <laughs> Has there ever been a huge, I'm guessing a lot of times, but have there ever yeah. been like a major thing that sticks out where you're like, this would be amazing, but not now, maybe we'll use this in the future? Oh, uh, well, good lord, constantly. I mean, so, bro- <laughs> so, I mean, I've got two, like, absolute hallmark examples. I went on a bit of a Twitter rampage a while ago because Dara was like, all right, talk about it and then you get really annoyed because i got so many followers from the twitter rampage uh where we talked about there was a planned expansion for da2 um and it was uh going to be set in like a, various parts of the free marches and the island of s watch and and there was a there was a whole massive expansion planned um but it it had to go not because the expansion was a bad idea there was some amazing ideas in there but there was an opportunity which basically boiled down to if you want to be the flagship group that moves on to Frostbite, then you need to be um, – you, you need to make that move now as opposed to after an expansion pack, right? And it's yeah. going to take a lot of people, mostly engineering because the Frostbite engine by default does not – did did not I should say because now it's better. Uh, did not really do RPGs, right? It was an engine built for amazing shooters, but there's a lot of a lot of stuff like save games that instead are checkpoints or stat systems or uh, melee hit volume combats, right? Or um, different different like and monsters like you know quadrupeds and stuff of that that we basically had to build from scratch. Um, so the choice was build an expansion to DA2, which I think would have been really good and I think it would have it would have been really cool, or kind of refocus the team and move it to Inquisition, uh, which at the time was it didn't have a name. Uh, I think it was actually codenamed Project Nugstorm for a while. Whoa, and, wait, and, uh, really? Yeah, and, and because Dara's, Dara, my boss, Mark Dara, his rule is if you have a code name, uh, it either needs to be completely innocuous, something already trademarked, though that's dangerous, because if that leaks, it's like one of those things. Yeah. Um, or uh, something so ridiculous you never fall in love with it and accidentally put it on the box. Anyway, so so it was it was that call. Do we make that expansion or do we refocus the team? And I think <clears throat> the unfortunate part of it, um, an Inquisition had had a little bit of a period that I would call walking in the desert, uh, where the engine wasn't ready for us to really be able to prototype gameplay. So we had an, we had a number of people that you know were in more design disciplines and gameplay disciplines who weren't able to work in any way at the level they'd grown used to because DA2 was was a very challenging project, but at least the tools were robust enough, um, whereas it felt like an uphill fight all the way through the opening stages of Inquisition. It very much was a game on a new engine in the same way that Mass Effect 1 was. We were lucky in that we weren't also building a new IP, but uh, 
it was it was it was a challenge. And um, you know, I I look at it and go, okay. Uh, in a lot of ways, you can almost see uh, a parallel to Inquisition and Witcher Two, in that Witcher Two was the first one on the on CD Projekt's Red engine. Uh, and then you see that quantum leap when they got comfortable with it and they 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 had their baseline already in place uh, for Witcher Three and just what they were able to do once they once they had that steadiness of workflow. When you take a step back before you make something like an Inquisition, uh, maybe an easy question to answer, but something I always kind of want to know: like, how daunting can it be just to get started? Like just to actually, it's, I mean, a really like minor example of that I think would be for me if I'm doing a large feature for a Polygon or a GameSpot back when I was still doing games media, it's if it's like three, four thousand word thing, you look at that blank word document and you're like, God, I where do I even start? Like, how do I even get started on this? For you, this is like a five, maybe six year project, massive RPG that could last the average player 50 to 60, 60 hours and maybe you're building 200 hours worth of gameplay of content into that so when you take a step back like where do you even start like what's the first step on that okay a you recognize that you're undertaking an effort that will be multiple years in the in the making yeah. you recognize that you have a really really um uh, massive responsibility, uh, especially when you're working on a sequel, because you need to be aware that that there are expectations set by the by the title you've worked on that you've um, established. Like, okay, this is the value proposition of a Dragon Age versus a Mass Effect, right? Like, if Dragon Age suddenly had cover-based shooting, people would be like, "Whoa, hold on." Um, uh, even even if you look at the reaction to DA2, people saying, "Oh, you have a voice protagonist." That's very that's very Mass Effect, you know. And, and it was like, you know, I remember I remember the more angry responses were, "Oh my God, you've just made it Mass Effect." I'm like, "Really? Is a voice protagonist the only thing?" <laughs> that's that the matters? only Mass Effect thing. That's all Mass Effect. <laughs> and I mean, I, I get it, right? Like, it's like it's like I, some people actually do prefer the long written out style of dialogue, and I totally understand that. But um, anyway, so so you you have to keep in mind, okay, if we're building a sequel like Inquisition, which was certainly, uh, we we need to make kind of targeted innovations as opposed to complete overhauls. Um, we need to expand rather than change, uh, and you know change stuff that that didn't work. And and of course, you know some people say, oh well, Inquisition was an overcorrection to too much space after DA two was too tight. And I'm like, yeah, you know that's a fair critique, um, but. I guess the big thing for me is is I look at it and go, okay, how do I make it so that a team that will probably grow into the into the two hundred person range um, understands what we're building and can build towards a single unified goal? And to me, that all comes down to vision and being able to say, we understand what we're trying to build and we understand the fantasy that we're trying to provide our players um, and and you know make them make them you know feel a set of elemental emotions. And if you can get to the point where that's really clear. And where the team can almost like intuitively hold things up to the light of that vision and go, oh, okay, I get, I get that this fits and I get why that doesn't fit, right? In the same way that I think um, almost anyone who's into sci-fi can tell you whether something fits more into Star Trek or fits more into Star Wars, right? Star Wars is about rebellion. Star Wars is about grit. It's about um, stroppy underdogs. While Star Trek is about politics, it's about um, you know, interference and more high concept sci-fi than Star Wars, which is about moment to moment conflict. Um, and so you look at that and you go, okay, some of those things work like scuffed paint. Scuffed paint is very rare in Star Trek, but scuffed paint is pretty much de rigueur for the rebellion. Yeah. Right. And so you look at that and you go, okay, cool. Thing, things that fit, things that don't. And, um, to me, trying to come up with a, with a, with a compelling kind of proposition, uh, for why this will be cool and why this will be something neat is probably the most important thing you can do in the starting months, right? And it's a months long process, not like, oh, it's a couple days and then we're just going to go for it. Um, you want to really, really put a lot of rigor in it because you're investing lots of money, lots of time and a significant portion of people's lives into that work. So that's, that's, that's for me kind of the, the most important bit. And it's funny, you mentioned Dragon Age 2 earlier, and I, and kind of how some people thought it was too tight. I am Team Dragon Age 2. Dragon Age 2 is my favorite of the Dragon sure. Age games. Yeah. Um, for me, the structure, the actual tighter structure focused me in a way that I really appreciate. I get a little overwhelmed with something of a, let's say, Skyrim level, where like there's so many quests, there's so many things hitting you, that for me, instead of being like, man, there's this giant open world to play with, it's like, ah, too much, overwhelmed, yeah. going, to, going to something more linear. 
yeah. in your mind, and I think it has to depend from project to project, from team to team, what you want to do. Do you ever, do you actually have a design preference when it comes to the size and kind of the linearity versus the openness of a world that you're directing? Like for you, would there be kind of a fun challenge to making a 15 to 20 hour Dragon Age experience that's just very direct, very linear, and very like, here's what we're making. There's not all these side quests everywhere. It's a very focused experience. I think, I think there's, I think there's value to that. I think for me, I've always considered um, choices with actual payoff to be something that's more intriguing to me. So when you say, like, uh, here's the thing, when you say a tight experience with less side quests, I, I, I actually am very intrigued by that and curious as to, to where it could land. Um, what would that look like and what's the shape of that? Because, I mean, even going back to Origins, uh, there's a lot of side quests, right? And and many of them are designed to reinforce the themes of the area and stuff like that, which is good. But, but you know, uh, I, I don't think I would be in a place where a Dragon Age Uncharted would honestly, for me, fit the core tenets yeah. of the IP, right? I think that uh, you know, when I think that like those games, they're amazing, but there's not a lot of variation, not a lot of reactivity. So I think if if you said, what would you do with a tighter Dragon Age game? I'd be I'd be much more inclined to say, well, is there a way one version of that experience could be tight, and then there's another one waiting in the wings, or another one on top of that right mm-hmm. um now that may be colored by the fact i just finished near automata which That's is like exactly oh, the game i was gonna bring up okay well done guys like you know the the route b in particular was was um surprisingly satisfying given that i kind of was redoing things but i was redoing them with different mechanics and i was redoing them with a different character and different point of view and like there was a lot of really really interesting elements there uh that's it i wouldn't necessarily just make near automata because again i think one of the core tenets of rpg is that you have some degree of choice and responsivity to it um which you know we we okay i, I won't say dabbled because that certainly undercuts the efforts but we did tackle with the idea that if you go after the templars the mages are no longer on the board and then when your base gets attacked at haven it's the mages who are allied with Corypheus, right? Like, like to me, that's a really cool diversion. Um, and I think if there's a place where we kind of fell down on there is we didn't necessarily sell the responsivity enough and we didn't necessarily sell that it was a big choice you had to make. I think a lot of people did one and then were surprised right. the other one went away. So um, that's just a matter of salesmanship and getting more used to it. But I guess I'm more intrigued by the idea of a much more quantum or um, – unknown until you observe it sense of quantum um idea of rpg than i am by like tight and linear and no no variance so i you know i'm yeah i I would half agree with you and the rest of me goes but but you know how do you rpg that up do you get access to any sort of player data where you can see the number of people who kind of just play dragon age straight where they're mainly doing main story and not really worrying about the 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 periphery everything on the side like are you able to actually find that out or for you really have no idea uh so we have like the you know all games have some degree of telemetry and then we use a lot of it with our qa team and testing and stuff um it is uh, it, it's not it's not data i have like oh here's a percentage of number of sitting on hand but it's something where um if it's data i would like to capture i can now and you know I feel like it's responsible for me to say there are options to go opt out of that if you want to, right? I know some people are like, oh, God, don't do not do that. And I'm like, cool, that's fine. Go ahead and turn it off. It will not hurt my feelings. Um, but it is it is the kind of stuff where we do it. For me, probably the more valuable um, stuff than just like, um, you know, here's reported data is uh, if we can do like a play test where like, hey, cool, here's 100 people. They're going to play the game for 10 hours. Let's see. Let's see how they play. Let's see what they do. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing to me is an incredibly valuable thing. And I will say one of the big advantages of working with EA is that they have a really robust set of user testing labs and teams that will even like collate data and collect reports and provide feedback. Um, so, you know, it, it does it does go to the idea that it's very rare that a um, game development team has no idea what's wrong with their game, but they may not have had the capacity or time to fix it, right? You know, it's one of those things where it's like, well, unfortunately, that's that's where we're at right now, and we're going to go with it. Uh, but at the same time, they also tend to know what's right with their game, and um, I just tend to look at that as always an opportunity to get better if you do another one. You mentioned earlier Uncharted, which the thing about Uncharted is very iterative from game to game, where... Mm-hmm. Same characters, uh, very often. They had some characters, but you're following Nathan Drake's journey. You're following these similar characters' journeys. Uh, for Dragon Age, you do. There's a lot of characters that do make cameos, but very often you're kind of starting fresh. It's it's a new story. It's it's a it's a new cast. You're 
not remove you're not throwing away those old characters those old moments but <laughs> those are kind of exclusive to the game that you made earlier so as a writer how difficult can it be to create these characters who you're personally attached to during a maybe five-year development cycle maybe more and then moving on like do you actually at times try to push for more dlc because you want to stay with these people to continue to flesh out these people who you've grown attached to i you know it's it's interesting um yes and no uh like you absolutely they're like your kids right um and the writers are like i cannot i cannot gush enough about our writing team um they have done an amazing job of fleshing them out the cinematics crew who who put those scenes that are sometimes touching sometimes funny sometimes heartbreaking they they do so much great work um but there is a point and i I imagine almost any game dev will tell you there's a point at which you're kind of done with the game right you've played it eight times like end to end you filed thousands of bugs you've you know you've got the point where you're like okay okay and there is there is a relief to going to something new there's a joy to that and i think i think you know i part of my philosophy is that by going to something new there is a real opportunity for us to say it's okay if you haven't played the previous games right it's it's okay if you're new to the series feel free to join us uh there's lots of stuff for you to catch up on uh one of the subtleties we even did is that if you play um dragon age inquisition and you do not import from the keep right so you have no you have no keep stuff set up uh which is sorry for context the keep is the thing that lets you set up your previous history so if you do not import a number of things disappear so Varric, uh, you know, easiest example when you talk to him in the first town, he'll tell you about Hawk, he'll tell you about Kirkwall, he'll tell you about what Isabella is up to, you know, he has a whole bunch of stuff. But if you play the game and you didn't import anything, he doesn't mention any of that stuff oh, really? because it has no meaning to someone that like did not engage with the keep or did not engage with DA2, which is, I guess, my, our, our assumption is if you didn't engage with the keep, you're, you're flagging the game to say, nah, it's cool. Um, so we do that because in a lot of ways, it's like it's really important to have it there, but it's also just confusing and alienating if you're new. So it's, it's finding that balance and saying, um, as a player – uh, what do I what do I want to experience? And and in our case, the keep was our big flag that said, okay, I want more texture. Um, and then as a developer, it's like, okay, new challenge, new crew, new cast. What are we going to do with them? How do, how do we mix it up? How do we, for instance, um, hey, we've explored one side of the Canary with Sten. We've explored another hyper dogmatic side of the Canary with the Aeroshock. Well, where else could we go? And then dear old Patrick Weeks wanders in and go, how about a rough talking, carousing, polyamorous BDSM Minotaur man? And everyone goes, <laughs> yes, we certainly haven't done that before. How confident are you you can pull that off? Oh, very. Okay, cool. Well, let's do this thing. You mentioned carrying stuff over and how, like, again, you don't want to feel like you missed a lot. If you don't carry things over, you're totally fine with those new games. Mm. Is it difficult to communicate that to new players? Like, if you're buying a Dragon Age 2, I think we're somehow maybe conditioned just to think, like, oh, well, I need to play Dragon Age 1 first. Is mm-hmm. that partially why Dragon Age Inquisition is not called Dragon Age 3 Inquisition? So that maybe <laughs> you see that name and you think, like, oh, I can start here because there's not this big number that's kind of gatekeeping me for something. Like, I don't need yeah. to have this big investment in the series. I can just start here. Yeah, um, hundred uh, percent. I think I think as well. The other the other reason to flag it, Inquisition, is because there's a degree of um, there's a degree of recognition that it's it's uh, closer in some elements of the experience to combat pace and stuff to Origins. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, I I I kind of always want Dragon Age two to be called uh, Dragon Age. The original the original working title was Dragon Age Exodus, right? Because you had to leave home, um, and it was one of those things where it just turned into a, a larger discussion with the publishing group and stuff like that. And they, you know, it, it was it was a decision that was made. Uh, not necessarily the decision I would have made, but that's okay. Um, but I think I think for me, the idea that it is a subtitle, that it is uh, in the same way that you know Star Wars Rogue One, Star Wars, you know, insert any number of spinoff products, it lets you ground it in. Um, it lets you ground it in a place and a time, which which I see the franchise as being fundamentally about, without locking it into a sequential number uh, that says no, 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 no. Two must come after one because I think we're we're just we're hardwired from the ground up to to think of numerical progression as linear and right. Whereas I can play you know, read Dragon Age Knight Errant and play Dragon Age Inquisition and go, okay, cool. Those are those are two separate things, but I do get what unifies them. So I think that the word form better represents the decisions we make creatively. And whenever you can find that level of harmony, life is a better thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I asked you earlier about DLC and kind of 
maybe keeping certain characters alive, that you can keep working with them, keep fleshing them out. Uh, similar to titles that people have at game development studios, sometimes I don't think uh, the average consumer understands how DLC works, how the actual production of that works. Like mm-hmm. A lot of people see, like, why is this DLC out two months later? Why wasn't this just in the core game? For you, when you're working on a Dragon Age Inquisition DLC, uh, how early do you actually start concepting creating this extra content? Like, Is that something that's planned well before the full game and you're working on it months before launch? Like, What's the kind of process usually? I mean, it's, it's definitely different from game <laughs> yeah. to game. But for you, what's kind of the average time you start working on DLC before it actually comes to fruition? Uh, maybe, maybe once we enter certification. Okay. Um, like, and a certification is a process in which you submit like a final version of the game to first parties like Sony and Microsoft, and um, we have our own certification group for um, Origin that says, okay, test this, make sure it hits all your compatibility notes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At that point, the game is done. The game is content locked. Um, even then, it's aggressive to say, okay, write to DLC, folks, because that's the team is tired. Yeah, when you finish a game, that's good. Yeah, the team the team has a thousand yard stairs and and kind of are like, okay, we did it. Okay, who? Because you've been fixing a lot of bugs. You've been deep, deep in minutia. Great, congratulations! Now that you finally, finally, finally got that one piece of banter to fire after debugging it a thousand times, what's your grand vision for a new story? It's like, no, <laughs> no, that's a gear shift that you need a you need a significant time on the clutch to pull off. Um, so we we our our approach in general is when the game is done, then we start looking at where our logical expansions. Whenever possible, I do like to look and go, okay. What's the feedback and how can we use DLC as an opportunity to kind of um, kind of skill buff our, our, our team to say, okay, cool, we've got feedback. What would we do if we wanted to address that feedback? Uh, the Inquisition DLCs in a lot of ways are um, what would a more robust open world where the story is more tightly integrated look like as an experiment, which is Jaws of Hackon. Uh, what would a longer, more sequential dungeon sequence look like? Because everybody wanted more deep roads. I, I'm not sure actually everybody wanted more deep roads, but we gave them more deep roads <laughs> with the descent. Uh, but also, you know, let's talk about lore and that kind of stuff because it certainly it certainly moves the dwarven needle significantly, uh, and you know, gives dwarves a little more a little more time in the sun. And that was a really cool opportunity to work with the Austin Studio as well. There was a group of them uh, who came and joined us. They they had um, they were working on Shadow Realms, which unfortunately was was ended production so that team came over and they had worked with frostbite so they said okay well we could we would love to do some dragon age i said well okay uh and we gave him some dwarves uh and then trespasser was the okay what if we did something that was just just story right like there's no there's nothing open in trespasser at all it's tight tight linear and i say i mean it's interesting because the experience is i would say closest to origins um, so in a lot of ways, uh, in the same way, uh, my understanding, I, I mean, I don't have sources to cite here, but that Pixar, a lot of their shorts are like, okay, let's work on facial expressions. And that's where the old guy playing chess with himself came from. Mm-hmm. Right. And they were like, let's really, really dig in on this. So I tend to look at DLC as an opportunity to, to expand the lore, recognize that the people who play DLC are going to be the hardcore DA folks anyway. Uh, so they're going to be we can we can like i'm not sure the descent makes a lot of sense unless you're in really into da and its lore but at the same time you can assume the dlc people are going to be pretty into da um by nature of the fact that they bought a secondary product um not in terms of its production but in terms of like it 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 necessity requires that you have owned inquisition before it is even available uh and you could say trespasser is even more hardcore because you had to finish the game so yeah yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. So the team the team puts itself out together, and you know we 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 try our damnedest to have you know as little crunch and stuff as possible. But I'm I'm not going to sit here and say Inquisition was crunch free in a paradise. Like we we worked hard on that game, um, and as we wrapped it, um, we kind of took some time and and said, okay, cool. So what else can we tackle? What else would add to the story? What else do we feel would be good value? Um, and you know, I I, I think in general, um, the D- Dragon Age Inquisition DLCs in particular are pretty well regarded, and I'm really really proud of them. And Trespasser in particular is one where I was not super directive. Um, my lead designer and and uh, lead writer Dan Kading and Patrick Weeks respectively, um, kind of like cut their teeth in those kind of larger roles uh, on that DLC, and I would say they they succeeded admirably. Yeah, and taking that time, like you said, after the actual full game is done to maybe take a step back, look at everything, review everything, and maybe most importantly, take the player and even media criticism and take that to heart before you make DLC has to be just invaluable. For you as someone who you did write reviews, like you mentioned, I I wrote reviews for years and years and years, uh, 
how do you deal with reviews? What do you use them for? Because like, I know plenty of developers who really take them to heart. Um, others are much more focused on the fan sentiment than the actual media sentiment. Um, very often I hear, like, when they see a criticism review, they already knew that criticism was going to happen. They're so close to the project. They know the issues. They know the good things. Uh, do you see scores um, and other games criticism as a tool or something else completely different? Oh, it's it's absolutely a tool. I mean, it's it's something that, you know, it's a data point. Um, is a data point where you end up with, you know, somewhere up to 200 reviews sometimes and you go, okay, well, let's not ignore that. That would be dumb. Uh, <laughs> instead, what we want to do is, um, the, the way, the way I approach it is, you know, I don't necessarily have time to read all of them individually. I don't have, uh, I don't have time to go through message boards and, and prowl through them. But what I will do is rely on our community team who are exceptional. I will rely on our production team, uh, again, Excellent, excellent group of individuals, and they will often kind of pull together sentiment reports. Uh, PR helps with this. Marketing can help with this. There's any number of groups, um, uh, Consumer Insights, all these different organizations that basically find different ways to talk about what's the buzz level on social media, what's the what's the general response to even an announcement, what's all that kind of stuff. And that to me is all really, really valuable in that I'm able to look at that stuff and make longer term decisions around, okay, not just what are we building, but also how are we communicating about what we're building? Because I think in a lot of ways, um, when I if there's a trend that I see in reviews and fan expectations is that the more honest you are about your game, like here's what it's going to do, and occasionally here's what it's not going to do, yeah. the better received it will be. Because there is, this game wasn't what I wanted, but I knew that, so I'm not angry about that, is very different from this game wasn't what I wanted and you told me it was what I wanted, right? Like those two things to me are very, very distinct. And so wherever possible, and I mean with Inquisition, we started doing like live Twitch streams and saying like, here, we're going to play the game for an hour, right? So if you want to see what it's like, this is the code. So here we go. Uh, and I think that, that that level of candor is good. I mean, you know, if I, if I go back in time, you know, some of the stuff that didn't survive out of the the, dem the big live demo we did at PAX, um, you know, I, I kind of wish it weren't there because, again, I dislike trying to be dishonest about the game. Um, I really want to try and say, like, you know, if, if I could boil my entire PR message down to this is a game and I, I really hope you enjoy playing it. And that's it. Right. No, <laughs> no promises. Just like we're going to show you as much as we can. And if you care to buy it, that would be lovely. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, that's that's a bit of a pipe dream. Right. I mean, you do actually need to actually talk about your game at some point. But um, but yeah, I, I, I tend to I tend to look at reviews and say, let's aggregate it and not like, you know, you can overfocus on the one guy who gave you a four and is like, this is the worst. It's like, sure. But, you know, those are a very hyper specific set of complaints. Um Instead, for me, it's all about trends and large-scale feedback and getting as much as you can and going, okay, cool, that helps us understand the successes and the failures, and it, that's the only way you grow is by being honest and candid with yourself. Would you say you're extremely thick-skinned at this point, being the creative director of a, of a series as large as Dragon Age, where, of course, like you said, there's the outlier reviews, there's the 3 out of 10 where the person is just going really hard at certain aspects of the game, but when you do put you know five years into something, I would have to assume, is, are there still random reviews that get under your skin and you want to get on Twitter and go on that one rant? Like, have you been close <laughs> to just being that one point where you're like, this motherfucker, and just wanted to start going? Less than I used to, and so I <laughs> guess the good. skin is still in the process of thickening. Like, it, it, it happens, and, and nine times out of ten, where I find it's not... Okay, there can be a review that's designed to hurt people's feelings. It's like, you know, those, they're kind of like, you just set them aside and you're like, okay, okay, you know, this wasn't for you. Fine. Um, the ones, I think probably the only ones that still kind of like set my teeth a little bit on edge are the ones where there's kind of the assumption of why didn't they just do, and it's a list of like 17 additional features or something like that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. where it's like, it's not, it's not particularly aware of constraint, right? Like it, 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 it it doesn't recognize that there are only so many people, so many hours in the day and so much time. Um, and, you know, a lot of those will tend to read kind of like, okay, why don't you just take all the best parts of Fallout and all the best parts of Witcher and all the best parts of Dragon Age and all the best parts of Halo and just put all those in one game? And it's like, well, that's intriguing. <laughs> but it also is um, – it's not very focused. It's not very purposeful. Um, and it's not – very realistic, it right? Pretty I mean, hard. 
Yeah, well, my my job my job as I see it is is to be able to be one of a, of a of a small team of people that makes decisions about what does and does not go in the game at the end of the day, right? And to be um, uh, uh, the one of the guys who should be to blame, absolutely to blame if it isn't good, right? Like the team, uh, the team has to execute on ideas, but it's up to leadership to say, okay, this is the idea we want to execute on, and. You know, I, I I try to stand up there and say, yes, there are things that are not not good. And every success is owned by the team and every failure should be owned by me. That's how I look at it. Yeah. And so when it's when it's like just kind of a big like you should just do everything. It's like, OK, that'd be lovely. But you know what? My job is actually to decide what everything is in this context. And and they don't bother me so much as make me desperately want to educate. But yep. the problem with like, OK, all right, let me tell you the hard realities of video game is that it kind of always comes across a little condescending. Mm. Um, and so there's this really careful balance you have to strike if you ever want to engage in that conversation, especially if it's a little under your skin because, you know, your tone is going to be a little more sharp and you don't want to be there and stuff like that. So when I can, uh, and I have an opportunity to talk to people reasonably and just say like, Hey, you know, I, I get it. Um, you know, like we could take an example of like, why don't you just do origin stories again? And I'm like, look, I love origin stories and origin stories were absolutely a worthwhile investment when we were rolling out a brand new IP, right? A brand new world. And we had to basically identify in what ways is this different from Tolkien? But the problem with an origin story is that it represents six different openings of the game. And the opening of the game has to establish your character, but it also has to establish how the hell do I play this game. Yeah. And when you have to replicate that same set of effort, which is notable six times, it becomes something that you have to look at the overall scope of the game and go, that is taking effort from somewhere else. And it's not in the way that, you know, some people are like, well, why are you doing new skins when you need to fix balance? It's like, okay, those are very different skill sets. In this case, it's like, why are you implementing this plot, uh, which is, you know, tutorials and flow, and it has to have enough, you know, uh, hook to make you excited. That's going to take away from a multidisciplinary effort elsewhere in the game. So, why not origin stories tends to boil down to you because they're exceptionally expensive and they don't serve the same purpose in a fourth game or fifth game or seventh game or, you know, uh, something like Inquisition that they would in Origins, right? So that's that's yeah. kind of like the decision I have to make. And Origins are awesome. I love them. They are so cool. They buy you into your character so hard. And yet at the same time, I have to wonder what's the opportunity cost that putting those in would be. And so – that's not an answer everybody's going to be happy with, but it's an answer that's well-reasoned. And I have found in general when when people take enough time uh, and are willing to kind of hear that out, they go, okay, I get that. That makes sense. You know, and I have to ask that question, like, what 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 are you willing to give up to do that? Because that's a question I have to ask myself. How – with all this new information you have from all these years of development, how different would you be as a game reviewer right now? Like, if you actually went out <laughs> and reviewed other people's video games, would you be like – just an entire like, – would you be more critical or would you kind of maybe give a couple people more slack because you're like, oh, I've been there. I know why this doesn't work in this way or why they chose this, so I'm not going to be that harsh on them. Like would it entirely change your perspective? Oh, man. I don't know. I feel like – I feel like I would probably review – exceptionally differently like you know when you're when you're when you're first out of school and stuff like that your reviews tend to be this is what the game is yeah. uh and i think what's more interesting to me like if i were going to do this is this is why the game is Absolutely. this is this is this is my best guess as to what i think was going on uh or hey hey you know would you you know if i could talk to other devs and go okay you know hey i'm, I'm doing this i'd actually like to to try and dig in and um from someone who's been there and has a sympathetic point of view Let's talk about the realities of this. And I think that um, over time, in the same way that people, I think, have it like, a, you know, and it's 80, 80 plus or 100 plus years later, people kind of get why Hollywood is what Hollywood is. And they understand like, oh, sometimes a movie gets canceled. But when a game gets canceled, it's like, oh, my God, what must have happened? It's like <laughs> it, it's the same thing, right? It's a series of very complicated choices. But uh, gaming is such a specialized discipline that is so not cemented it's still very much in pioneering days that it's hard to understand that we don't have the common language we don't have the intuitive understanding of the challenges uh so i guess i guess i probably would have a very hard time being an objective reviewer so much as wanting to be like an investigative reporter who's in it not to tear down the devs not to reveal gross mishandling or whatever but more to like all right let let, let me all let's all learn from this let's all yeah. understand this and i think that would be um super interesting i mean i'll be honest when i do the the indie saturday twitch streams 
Um, I do them and occasionally we'll just kind of like, okay, everybody, sidebar, let's talk about what just happened. I remember going off on uh, how there's a specific part where Firewatch runs you through a little S-bend uh, of a cave, right? Just a little, little S-bend of a cave. And I talked about the two reasons they would do that. Number one being it gives them a chance to unload the stuff behind you to clear out memory, yeah. right? Which is super critical uh, because – especially if you're running on a console platform, memory is is small. And if you're on PC, memory is variable. Uh, and then the other big thing is what they do is unless you are like deliberately staring at the ground, which, you know, most people don't do. They look forward at where they're walking because you tend to mirror your natural instincts when you play games. Um, that that S-Bend leaves you coming out of the cave at a very specific angle. And that angle is designed to give you the best possible vista of a sunset over a lake and you go wow that's gorgeous and that was crafted right and so taking a moment to go like look what this is look at what this does this is amazing and calling out those efforts to me can be like immensely satisfying i think we need more of that too i think actually having someone who's you know been there done that been through it and of course like you said you're not you weren't actually on the team who made Firewatch, but you're able to understand that is like super valuable to people who might just not know, who might have no idea why games are doing certain things and how yeah. they're doing certain things. Yeah, um, like I mean, you know, his thing, you, you you can you can laugh all you want at Frustrum Culling being, you know, well everybody <laughs> knows about Frustrum Culling. Mean, no, not everybody knows about Frustrum Culling. And it's actually really cool that more people know about it now. Right? Yeah. Like to me, any chance to educate is um, an amazing chance that we should take. And 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 it will come in time, um, it will come thanks to the efforts of folks like Rami Ismail and, um, uh, you know, so many people to do these amazing GDC talks and some of that where you're, it's like, let's understand what's going on and let's dig in a little deeper than just it game, it fun, it not fun. And of course, Bioware is massive and there's different studios, different places doing different things. Um, and I don't think you speak for all of Bioware, but, uh, how much in your experience do the different branches of Bioware kind of share with each other when they're all working on new projects? Let's pretend right now you're working on some top secret major Dragon Age game that you can't talk about. Uh, <laughs> That's are, are crazy. You, <laughs> are you talking and taking bits and pieces from maybe what the Mass Effect Andromeda team did or talking to the Anthem team now since that was recently announced um, and maybe just any other games in the periphery? Are you, to a certain extent trying to share what you're doing technology ideas discoveries or is it kind of that the certain teams work in isolation no this is, the, the isolation is isolation bad uh, <laughs> uh metallica good wow just man napster bad reference how how dated um, i loved it yeah uh so the the um uh, so the majority of our production team, like the, the developers, will move from project to project, right? There are, there are, but what you'll find is kind of at the leadership level, that's, those are the folks that tend to like, you know, like stay on a franchise because their, their job is to kind of go, okay, well, where would we go next? And there's a real value to having a small team that helps you figure out where you go next rather than, you know, hey, 200 whatever people let's, you know, let's, let's all figure it out together because it's very hard to get consensus with an enormous team. Um, you know, and you don't need that much QA when there's no game, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, most of our developers move around and they, they very aggressively say, Hey, there was a best practice. Hey, there was a tools upgrade. Hey, there was this, can we bring that over? And one of the best things that's happened to Bioware in the past little while, um, and, and I think it's something that we're still seeing the benefits start to, to formalize is Inquisition was the first project to move on to Frostbite. Uh, and Andromeda and Anthem are also on Frostbite. So basically tech work that we do and tech skills that our developers have transfer cleanly because it's the same engine. Whereas in the previous, we had Eclipse, which was where the Dragon Age was built. And we had Unreal, which is where Mass Effect was built. And it was, you know, there was a deep enough divide that there were certain programmers who were so deep in the Unreal side of the code that they actually could not use any part of Eclipse because they were basically being exposed to proprietary epic information which again was totally agreed upon but out of respect for that and out of out of legal requirements we they could not touch the code on yeah. the dragon age side. so that's all gone now and we have the benefit of being able to, to work directly with the frostbite team even in fact there are even members of the frostbite team that work out of our studio uh who are local and 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 contributing to the core code and so it's 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 up to us to kind of curate and build this engine to have a robust kind of rpg layer is a great way to think of it right so you have the core engine for rendering and then you have the rpg part of it that that in a lot of ways bioware has pioneered 
um, the Dragon Age team submitted an awful lot of stuff to Core Frostbite because we were we were working in a different way with different needs um, in terms of our storytelling and stats and all that kind of stuff than any other game was. So that that meant that we developed a pretty good relationship with the Core Frostbite team. So yeah, uh, we don't just move it between Bioware. We also, to some degree, collaborate directly with Dice. That's, yeah, I would assume it, it's only helpful to share stuff. Of course, you don't want to get you know, throw out your ideas and start using all of theirs, but it has to kind of be this collaborative nature, this sharing of different ideas. So like you said, isolation is probably terrible. The mm. idea of just like, it's, it's like when you're the only writer and there's no editor and there's yeah. that they <laughs> yeah. could have totally spotted that you didn't yeah. because you've just been staring at it for so long. Uh, yeah. One last thing I want to bring up, because I would be crazy to at least not ask. Uh, for something like Jade Empire 2, which sure. is not a video game, but just sure. saying, for something like Jade Empire 2, which we, we did talk about a little bit before, it has this big cult following. Um, and again, if you look on Twitter, there's always people who are like, God damn it, I want Jade Empire 2. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. How, how do you determine, maybe this is Bioware as a whole or your publisher, um, whether or not that is real, actionable excitement that will lead to millions of sales versus something that the smaller, passionate group that's really gunning for it. I mean, you look at something like, I think it was Project Rap Rabbit, which was from the Parappa team, which was on Kickstarter, and they had like mm-hmm. a million dollar goal. And, you know, you always hear about like, man, I want another game like Parappa, and that only got about 200000 in funding, which is still incredible. That's but a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It absolutely is. But like, it's not enough to make a game like that. It's this sure. weird imbalance between is this, you know, the real excitement for a Mirror's Edge 2, where maybe not as many people bought the new Mirror's Edge if it was really good, uh, that you would hope? Or is this like a real thing? Like, did you. Would you have to almost initially kickstart something like a like a Jade Empire two just to see if that interest is there and then fund the rest? Like, how would you even go about doing that and knowing if it is financially worth making a Jade Empire two? Right, um, man. So complicated, complicated question. Uh, I think I think you know. Here's the thing: you can gather X amount of data around sentiment. Uh, around enthusiasm, you can you can do market studies and focus tests and things like that to basically say what would your intent to buy be, um, and what you know is this at all financially viable? You can also look around the industry and say, okay, well, what what kind of um, other games would fall into this space, both thematically, uh, right, kind of kind of being this mythological version of of um, well, very much China through a lens, right? Mm. Um, and and deliberately not China, right? We were very careful about that because in no way do I wish to tread on another culture. Yeah. Uh, that is that is, and it's you know, I am not an expert. Yeah, it it is, and, and it's just like fucking disrespectful. So yeah. let's you know, let's be careful that this is our own space. But it's but it's inspired by, uh, in the same way, you know, some stuff's inspired by King Arthur that clearly is not uh, uh, La Mort Barter, you know, official. <laughs> so. Um, I look at that and I, I, you know, you could go, okay, sentiment, you could look at relative products, like, okay, other games that are kind of, um, okay, it's a brawler, but it's a brawler where you move through space, where you have a bit more open world, which honestly, again, if we go back to Nier, is pretty much like that, that's the Jade Empire combat mechanics, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's talk to people and then go out and fight. Um, you know, Jade being a little more narratively heavy than Nier, but, but um, or a little more nonlinear in places too, but sell a V uh, and you look at all that and go, okay, cool. So, you know, is there a market for this kind of game at all? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. If, if, if the answer is yes on the flow chart, then you proceed to, is there a passion to build it? Right. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to say, well, there isn't a passion to build it because we haven't built it. It's more um, that you need, you need passion, you need talent and you need the right people and the right team and then capacity. Right. So uh, Bioware um, started its own IP development with Jade um, promptly finished up um, Night Seal Republic and moved to Mass Effect, which you could say, which was the same team in terms of leadership that finished Knights and went, so, okay, what about our version of sci-fi? What would that look like? Um, and of course, then you had the team that, that finished Neverwinter Nights and said, hey, what would our version of fantasy look like, right? What, what could we do? And that's how you get Dragon Age. So, of those, I would say that that you know the big capacity we had and and the desire we had was was to pursue DA and mass. Um, that said, I'd be I'd be a fool to say that that um, we weren't considering a Dragon Age. We certainly had some plans for a Dragon Age too, which I am loath to talk about. But uh, it, it it existed. There was a time where where oh where wait, a Dragon Age two or a Jade Empire two? Sorry, uh, sorry, yeah, Dragon Age two right. existed for real. A Jade Empire two was talked about. It was it was certainly considered, right? Um, and here's the thing: it's that at no point would I ever say that there in in a, this way, in a universe where there could be a Beyond Good and Evil two 14 years <laughs> later. Um, I think it's very possible there could still be a Jade two. And and if someone said to me, "Hey, what would you do a Jade two? I have an answer. 
I have a very clear answer in my head. But I also recognize that the majority of the leadership of Jade Empire 2, the people who are really the passionate vision holders, are all on Dragon Age, yeah. right? Uh, the lead programmer was my executive producer on DA, Mark Dara. The lead lead art director was Matt Goldman, who is our art director on DA. Uh, my co-lead writer and myself are both on, you know, like working on my team right now, and we've all been on DA. And it's just like, okay, so um, <laughs> let's put it this way. Dragon Age is fairly distracting. It's yep. it's a pretty full time job. I doubt you that, can split that team between two projects like that. Right? Yeah, it's like yeah, guys, can you just direct both of these? One's an action <laughs> game. One's a one's more of a tactical party based game. It's like oh dear lord, those are so different. Um, so yeah, the the you know, I mean, someone somewhere is going to write an angry think piece saying, aha, Dragon Age killed Jade Empire. It's like well, no. Uh, but the the but a lot of the folks that I think still have like really fond memories of Jade. Um, and, and, and kind of know it in their bones are, are still pretty actively engaged in, you know, working on your inquisitions, which again, takes a hell of a lot of time. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, it's no secret that we're doing something with dragon age. Mm. Um, I can't talk about what, but we're certainly involved in something. Uh, Mr. Kennedy, of course, made that clear and, and that's fine. Right. (laughs) Uh, but but unfortunately the detail train stops right there after rolling approximately one inch out of the station. I tried to get Alexis to say so many things about stuff he couldn't talk about about the new Dragon Age, but he, he never told me. I, I tried to get it out of him. I tried to get my journalist on and see if he could announce it, but <laughs> no luck. That that news did not come from my podcast. Uh, right. So, Mike, just to give you a quick chance to promote yourself here and maybe anything, what are you what are you working on that you can talk about? If there's any sort of Dragon Age related things that have been announced that you can speak about or maybe something that released recently? And also, sure. where can people find you on Twitter and Twitch? Okay, so easy ones are Twitter and Twitch. Uh, both of them are Twitter.com or Twitch.com, and then Mike underscore Laidlaw. I'm I'm there. I announced my Twitches on my Twitter, so they are they are nicely recursive. Uh, I do not announce my tweets on my Twitch, <laughs> though sometimes I talk about something someone sent me while I was streaming to explain why I just suddenly broke out into laughter. Just dramatically uh, read tweets on your. Twitch account. Oh god! Oh my god! That, I don't know. I should. I should do that. Make it like a Sunday night thing. Hello. Let's go through my <laughs> poetry mentions. reading. My current one is. It's funny because I'm super tempted to call you Mikey sometimes, but then I remember you know people with that name. <laughs> Joking with uh, Mikey Newman about about him copywriting the name Michael, and I'm like, damn, how much do I owe you for a variant? He's like sixty four million dollars is how much you owe me. I'm like, ah, do you take installments? And yes, one of sixty four million dollars. Oh like, okay. man. I'll sell a kidney. Uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, Twitter, lots of fun. Twitch is amazing. I do that Saturdays and Thursdays, 8 Pacific. There you go. There's my plug. Uh, I do often do other times, too, but those two are the ones I commit to. Uh, they're fun. They're fun. Uh, what do we work out? Okay, so here's the thing. Something is happening with Dragon Age. That much That much has been said, and I'm totally comfortable with that being out there. I can't talk about what. I will say one of the things I am doing right now is hiring I am hiring a lot of people. Uh, I've got I've got some level design positions open. I've got some gameplay design positions open. So if anyone out there is listening, that's like, hold on, <laughs> I've designed levels, and again, they are they are they are experienced positions. So it's like you know, uh, I recognize that narrows the field considerably. But um, it's really exciting for me to to have an opportunity to look at new talent. Um, you know, uh, I partner with universities and like try to get co-op programs or like internships, you'd call them. They're paid, but because uh, uh, I, I strongly believe they should be. Uh, and, and, you know, to be able to kind of get some junior talent, but also some experienced talent in to do whatever is happening. <laughs> they, are, they would be involved in that. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, other really fun stuff that's cool. Uh, so we have uh, the Knight Errant series of comics. Uh, are in in progress right now. Number two just came out. Number three will be out before long. Uh, that's a five, I believe, book series um, that's that's been um, put together by um, uh, a, folk, a couple of writers named Nuncio and Christina, who are absolutely fantastic to work with and huge Dragon Age fans, which which to me is always the best yeah. uh, scenario. Uh, and is there anything else floating around out there? Um, there are other things in progress, but I unfortunately can't talk about them until until they are realized. Um, I'm pretty excited about a few of them. Those are the biggies. Those are the biggies for right now. Um, I don't think there's anything else kind of announced. But, you know, things continue apace. As I jokingly said at PAX, I, 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 I am the creative director for the Dragon Age franchise, and they ain't fired me yet, so I'm probably <laughs> doing something. 
things are going well. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Really, Dragon Age is an incredible series. It's a really cool series. I'm really looking forward to uh, what does come next that you can't talk about yet. I would love to have you back on the podcast when things go more public so maybe you can go into <laughs> the details you're allowed to detail. Uh, and again, anyone who is listening, they should follow you on Twitch because, again, the way you talk about games, like you mentioned with Firewatch, that sort of perspective from someone who's been in the thick of it for so long is not only educational but also fascinating for someone like me who, uh, again, me getting going from media now going more into development it helps me understand things that I didn't understand before. So yeah, thank you again so much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to what you do next. Oh, thanks so much. And I, and I, as fair warning to anyone who's going to watch a Twitch, sometimes I do a swear. <laughs> That's so cool. No. But yeah, no, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks for the questions. Amazing. I appreciate it. And I'm going to have to, at one point, send you a code for Here They Lie, the, the game oh. that my team worked on. One, it's a horror game, and I want you'll be swearing a lot. And nice. two, I would love to actually hear kind of your thoughts on some of the design elements of it. So you, you might get a code in your inbox soon. Let's uh, do it up. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, thanks again, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of The 1099.